Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to be talking to the strongest man in bodybuilding. And then we're going to look at annoying bumper stickers. Within a few years, and I was still only, I think my first bodybuilding show, I weighed 158. And I was, uh, I think I had squatted damn near 500. It was hideous, but I did it. If you don't continue to take your body somewhere it hasn't been before, it's not going to continue to grow or get stronger. And that's uh, frustrating. That's a message I'm trying to get out now as loudly as I can that these uh, uh, bro trainers uh, should find a different career and quit ruining women's health uh, to get a deal with the sharks because over 200 people present on the show and only 120 of them air and the sharks will tell you in most cases that if the show doesn't air you don't have a deal do you think like is your genetic is yours genetic material worthy of reproduction it, uh, yes in, in comparison to I should be at the forefront of the reproduction uh, line. I got a little extra that I could lose, but it's not like I'm walking around with, you know, uh, obvious issues. Well, I, I do have a blood disorder. No, and if Dale Earnhardt was your father, that wouldn't have any bearing on your father's mustache. Like, two men don't make the baby. I want to thank everybody so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. This episode, we're going to be doing something we don't normally do. Normally, when we do a guest interview, we stay pretty general. For example, like last episode, we had on Red Bull Air Force and professional skydiver Jeff Provenzano, and we didn't get into a big discussion about the best kind of parachute threads. We generally don't get really into the weeds. This episode, though, we're going to do that. Our guest is known as the strongest man in professional bodybuilding, but after talking to him, I feel like he might be the smartest man in professional bodybuilding because some of the information that he has when he talks about training and just the different nutrition and all of the different things that go into bodybuilding as well as training some of the biggest, literally size-wise biggest and in terms of popularity and strength biggest athletes that are out there, are just fascinating. This is Stan Efferding. What came first for you? Was it the bodybuilding or the powerlifting? Yeah, definitely the bodybuilding. I was only 140 pounds in college, so I just wanted to put a little muscle on my body. I wasn't strong at all. Did it happen pretty quickly for you? You know, I did get 
reasonably strong, even though I didn't get very big initially. Uh, I don't know if that was a predisposition of mine or not, but I worked up to where I was squatting 500. It wasn't pretty. You know how we did it back in the day. It was just saying you can do it. But um, within a few years, and I was still only, I think my first bodybuilding show, I weighed 158. And I was, uh, I think I had squatted damn near 500. It was hideous, but I did it. For you, is it easier to put on the strength? Is it easier to put on the muscle? You know, it was easier for me to get strong. The muscle was always harder. Why do you think that was? Is it just genetics? Is that how it works? Or what is that? Well, I was doing a lot of things wrong. I was uh, probably just training too much, uh, eating too little. I was lifting heavy, heavy weights all the time, thinking that's what was going to make me large. And in fact, I needed more repetition, probably more volume. And I was just uh, overtraining and under eating was the biggest part of it. It's hard to add mass at a calorie deficit, but you... Uh, you can definitely still add strength. We're finding that out now. The science is showing us that that's uh, it's one of the, the benefits of, uh, of just training heavy is a lot of it is central nervous system. Not all of the, uh, the muscle gain has to be, you know, all the strength has to be compromised when you're dieting. How does that kind of work? I mean, how can you add strength without adding muscle weight necessarily or add muscle size without adding strength? That kind of doesn't make sense to me. How does that work? Yeah, well, you're generally going to add strength when you add muscle size, assuming you're lifting you know, heavier weights. You can add just as much muscle in the 5 rep range as you can in the 12 rep range as you can in the 20 rep range, assuming you're at a calorie surplus. Uh, but you'll add more strength in the 5 rep range. And it has something to do with the contraction of the muscle fibers that uh, it's, a, it's a nerve, uh, you know, a nerve firing. They call uh, neural adaptations, uh, recruitment of the muscle fibers. Uh, you can generally maintain, uh, so long as you're not losing muscle uh, cross-sectional area, you know, shrinking, uh, then you can, and you're just losing body fat, then you can maintain strength or even add strength uh, just by lift, continuing to lift heavy weights. We see it a lot with people that are in weight classes that want to have a high strength to weight ratio. And as long as they keep pounding away pretty consistently over time, lifting the heavier weights, and their body will adapt to that. The strength adaptations don't necessarily always require a hypertrophy adaptation. Now, a larger muscle can become a stronger muscle if trained appropriately. If you're training your type 2X fibers, they can become stronger. But if you're just doing hypertrophy training, a lot of type 1, type 2A fibers, um, then you may get more volume and not as much strength, kind of depending on. See, strength is specific. You have to actually be lifting in the 2 to 5 rep range most of the time to make that strength adaptation. How did you get into bodybuilding? Uh, you know, I just wanted to get bigger initially. And then, you know, at the time, uh, there were folks at the gym who were competing and that looked like a pursuit that would be consistent with my goals for sure. So it's just, it's one of those things that you just kind of get obsessed with. You know, it's even more popular now than it was back then. But I can remember bodybuilding shows in the late 80s that uh, were quite popular. We would have a couple hundred competitors in a show. And then it started to taper off for a while. And I think when they reintroduced... Uh, physique figure bikini classic uh it just exploded in the last seven or so years the industry has has just grown by leaps and bounds so it's gotten more popular than ever you're kind of described as the as the world's strongest bodybuilder did you set out to be the strongest bodybuilder or was that just part of your training it was part of my training all i wanted to do was get bigger and i thought that the heavier i lifted the bigger i would get 
didn't learn till many years later that that wasn't uh, the case, as we just discussed. Hypertrophy is an interesting animal, and uh, uh, another problem is is that as people keep dieting for shows and keep calorie restricting and keep trying to maintain a six pack all year round, uh, they limit their potential for growth. Sometimes they're going to have to. It's a lot easier to add muscle in a calorie surplus. And you may have to compromise a little bit of your body fat percentage to get up there. Not too much. We've seen how that can work against people. Uh, when they dirty bulk and get too fat, they gain too much weight, they start getting uh, metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, fatty liver, and then they're partitioning nutrients towards uh, fat storage instead of building muscle. And I, I deal with that a lot with powerlifters and strong men and the larger athletes who kind of uh, – they kind of top out in terms of progress because they're, they've created metabolic syndrome for themselves and we have to fix that problem. If, if you're too thin, too ripped all the time doing your Instagram photo shoots every weekend, you're going to leave a lot of potential muscle mass on the team. Do you think that if you would have had the knowledge that you had now, back when you were kind of fully competing, do you think that your results, so to speak, would have been much different? Oh, 100%. I say that all the time. I think I lead off most of my seminars. If I knew then what I know now, and part of my goal is to help uh, young lifters uh, learn the lessons that uh, that I took so long to learn, that uh, I think with all the information we have now, I think their lifters today are in a much more advantageous position to make better gains quicker, smarter, how do you, how can people i mean there's obviously there's a lot of youtube stars there's a lot of these different kind of fitness blogs how can how can people sort through the real science from the bro science kind of idea yeah that's a hard one i used to complain that there was no internet whenever i was coming up and so the guy behind the counter at the gym was your source of information if he was eating tuna fish and rice cakes and you'd do the same and you had arnold schwarzenegger's encyclopedia bodybuilding so you'd be training for two hours a day doing 30 sets and after a while you if you don't figure out that that's not the best path, that you're going to have to eat a little more food and you're going to have to train a little less, then you're destined to get discouraged. Nowadays, one of the big challenges is there's too much information out there and trying to find good information uh, can be hard for some folks. Fortunately, even more recently in the last couple of years, some of the really highly credentialed individuals that uh, also participate in bodybuilding and powerlifting um, the Greg Knuckles of the world with his mass research review, and uh, I'd like to think that the products that I'm putting out there with the vertical diet and the great athletes I've been working with and the feedback we've been getting, um, you know, we support our information with lots of research, uh, lots of science. Uh, there's some great scientists um, on, you know, muscle hypertrophy, uh, Brad Schoenfeld, um, or Brett Contreras and Brad Schoenfeld. Uh, nutrition, Alan Aragon, Lane Norton. There's a host of names out there of people who have kind of started to come to the top and put out really reliable, unbiased, uh, dependable information. It's just kind of finding those folks. Um, a lot of the bro science guys, even though a lot of the things they've done was is right, has been proven to be right. The rep ranges, the frequency, uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of the nutrition programs that have, have weathered uh, time. Uh, are starting to float to the top. Uh, but there's been a lot of bad information out there, a lot of over-restrictive nutrition programs with egg whites and tilapia and broccoli and a lot of uh, bro science training programs, either too much volume or uh, just not enough intensity. Uh, I, I think people kind of quickly, they get through those and find that there's a, there's a host of resources now 
uh, well-educated, highly accredited guys with masters and PhDs that are out there that uh, that know what they're doing and give great information. When you were competing, I mean, how is what was the bodybuilding scene like back then? You know, back then, the, the, one of the challenges was is there was only one pro card given a year at nationals for uh, the overall or for the for for each weight class. Class and one a year at the USA's for the overall winner. So what you found is you had a lot of really, really high quality top guys that were still amateurs, and when they won a pro show, uh, the Flex Wheelers and the Chris Cormiers and, and those folks back then, when they won a pro show, they would turn right around, or when they won when they won their pro card at nationals or the USA's, they would turn right around and win a pro show and then go to the Olympian because they were that good. It had taken them so long uh, to filter to the top. So nowadays, you give out 100 pro cards a year, and, and so the quality of competitors uh, had had significantly decreased at the national level, the top national level, because they had jumped into the pros so quickly. And it took a while. Now we're starting to see you know, a lot of folks that got their pro cards uh, more recently aren't terribly competitive at the pro level. Um, but we're seeing now as more and more of them start to compete, we're, we're uh, the quality is improving. We're getting some really great classes now. For a while there, they were pretty weak, but uh, and at, at the same by the same token, the national shows where people win pro cards, those aren't as uh, competitive as they used to be in the early '90s. In the early '90s, those were extraordinary. The top ten guys were on the cover of magazines, and they weren't even pros yet. So it was just kind of a filtering process. Now they give out a hundred cards a year. Back then, they give out two. When you look at all the different classes that they have, do you like that? Do you think that's a natural evolution? What do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's great for competitors. I think it's great for the audience because different people like different things. I even like the fact that that with the judging criterion that even within a single class like the Olympia, you've got you know fans that like different things. You've got your you know different physiques that uh, people tend towards, um, and now with the class bodybuilding uh, uh, you know people can can also you know get engaged in the sport at, at a level that's uh, probably uh, more within reach of most people uh, when I was coming up again I, my first bodybuilding show I was 158 pounds and if you're a six foot guy you need to be 240 plus on stage ripped to get a pro card and so there's only one option and that was to just get as huge as possible. And that took many, many, many years for most people. There were the the freaks, you know, the Jay Cutler was damn near the same size he is now when he was 18 years old, when he won national, teen nationals. So it was a pretty much a genetically predispositioned or gifted individual that could, that could compete in the pro ranks back then. And nowadays it's a different kind of gift. Uh, you know, you can get a college lacrosse player who's just got you know, fantastic lines and is in good shape can uh, diet for two months and throw on a tan and just by virtue of the fact that he's, uh, he's uh, you know, very athletically inclined and he's been gifted with some great lines and joints to belly, muscle-belly ratios, etc. Um, it's, it's definitely more of a, a beauty uh, competition now to see some of the incredible tiny waists and long muscle bellies and uh, like those Flex Wheelers, would, you know, was a rare individual back uh, when he was competing with those tiny, tiny waist and small joints and large muscle bellies, you're seeing that now with guys that are, you know, much, much smaller, 212 pounds, 190 pounds, 185 pounds, 
uh, they can achieve just as high a pinnacle in the sport. Like we talked about, you were one of well the strongest bodybuilder. What was the most you ever did on some of the big lifts? Uh, you know, in training, I squatted over nine hundred pounds with uh, no suit. It was uh, raw, just knee wraps and a belt. Eight fifty four with no knee wraps was my heaviest squat. That's still a world record for the over 40 class, but uh, I think there's one person that beat that uh, 854 squat in the 275-pound class since I did it. Benched over 600, 606 in a couple of meets. Um, Deadlifted over 8, 837. Totaled 2303. At the time I did it, there was probably only 12 men in the world who had done it. And there's still nobody over 40 in history that's ever totaled over 2303. So there's some things that, uh, you know, some achievements that I made in powerlifting that I was proud of uh, that I really, to be honest with you, at the time I was chasing those numbers, uh, I didn't realize that nobody had done some of those things before. I was just uh, looking around at some of the great lifters at the time, Konstantin Konstantinov was kind of my 275 nemesis from latvia at the time he's since uh, deceased but it, it was a great battle when when we were going through it now i think anytime you talk about bodybuilding this question is going to come up did you do this naturally or did you take anything no i used performance dancing drugs when i competed uh, as did everybody and as it was an ifbb pro and everybody i ever competed against in powerlifting i consider that to be an even playing field i, I don't think there's any secrets or tricks or gimmicks there even though a lot of folks uh, spend a lot of time preoccupying themselves with whatever advantage that may give. But amongst those using performance-enhancing drugs, uh, uh, there's very little difference. And I think that the cream still rises to the top. I think that uh, that had nobody been using them, I would have still been in the same position uh, because of the training methods that I used and the discipline that I had and the kinds of messages that I uh, provide for my athletes now. Uh, everybody that, that I you know, ever competed against, use them. And many of the athletes that I train for uh, untested competitions uh, would still be at the top of, of uh, would still be winning those competitions if, if nobody was using them. So I, I don't think you can uh, put your finger on that as you know, I had a lot of folks saying that if they could take what I took or if they took as much as somebody else, they could get better. Uh, I think that that's a huge misunderstanding in the industry. You take a you know a CC a test or three CCs a test. I don't think that's the differentiating factor. I think the differentiating factor that I've seen amongst some of the best athletes is how incredible disciplined and consistent they are for many 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 years, and that's what puts them at the top amongst a group of people who are all doing the same thing. When you take those the performance enhancing drugs, like how what does it help with? Does it help with the muscle growth, with recovery, with energy, or how does that work? Uh, recovery mostly, muscle protein synthesis. It just increase, increases the uh, the amount of uh, and the rate at which you can recover from training and utilization of protein that you eat. Uh, so you, you can train uh, harder more often is what it allows you to do because uh, you'll recover better from – uh, more intense training sessions and faster from more intense training sessions. So you might be able to do in, in uh, two years what it might take someone else for as a natural athlete. And then they also you're also going to realize uh, an additional hypertrophy benefit. There's a much smaller strength benefit. Oddly enough, the research suggests that, uh, that the hypertrophy is the bigger 
percentage of difference between uh, natural athletes and those that uh, are using performance enhancing drugs as compared to the strength difference is much, much smaller as a percentage when compared uh, those who are and aren't. Now, that's one of those words that hypertrophy, what is it again? Tell me. Hypertrophy, yeah, muscle, just that's just the building of, of muscle or growth, hypertrophy. Okay, that's one of those things like I know what that is, but I don't know what that is, if that makes any sense. You know, and interestingly enough, the science, uh, the scientists don't exactly know what that is either. They argue all over the, all the time about what's the major contributing factor to building muscle. Um, they know a lot about it, and it is complex, uh, but there's a host of different variables that go into it. And there's no uh, one thing that, that comes to the top as being, um, you know, the major factor. It's, it's kind of a, it's a host of different variables between frequency and volume and intensity uh, recovery also is a huge component. People recover at different rates. Some people uh, are also uh, more disciplined and, and consistent with sleeping more and eating better food so that they can uh, recover from workouts. But the training itself, you have to understand, is, is uh, you're just breaking down muscle tissue. You don't build any, anything lifting weights. And so the recovery period, uh, hypertrophy occurs outside the gym. That's your body repairing and rebuilding all the damage that you caused. It's what they call hormesis, kind of a hormetic effect. When you go in and lift weights, you're breaking down muscle. You're, you're creating uh, damage, micro-tearing in the, in the muscle fibers. In the process of rebuilding those and then uh, overcompensating or, or hypercompensating by building a little additional muscle because of the, the stress suggested that the body needs to adapt in such a way to anticipate it. Uh, more of the same, then you can. That's hypertrophy. That's uh, that's not just rebuilding, but it's it's uh, actually improving uh, both in terms of strength and size. Your body's ability to endure the same stress in the future, and it stops when you stop challenging your body to such a degree that it's required to adapt, and so that it can uh, you know anticipate more more stress. If you continue doing what you've always done. Your body doesn't uh, adapt in such a way that allows you to do more. So that's the hard thing about training, whether it be for strength or for size, is that uh, if you don't continue to take your body somewhere it hasn't been before, it's not going to continue to grow or get stronger. Obviously, from using the performance-enhancing drugs and from training the way that you did, have you had any long-term kind of ramifications from that in terms of like joints or? No, and it would be the same for people that weren't using performance-enhancing drugs that are. Anybody can overtrain and create a degenerative effect. Um, tendonitis uh, is just kind of an overtraining effect. Maybe even your the, the joints of your vertebral column or your knees, the cartilage. You can overtrain that. Even runners who run too much. I think the studies are done on people who ran, say, 12 and a half miles a day or so, as I remember from the literature, uh, uh, would have a degenerative effect. Their, their meniscus uh, would actually start... To, Rate. But those who ran six miles a day, uh, the meniscus would thicken and grow and get stronger. Same thing with loading from weights. And that's true of your vertebral column as well. In the absence of load, such as when astronauts go up to the moon, those, uh, those joints will also deteriorate. The collagenous tissue, the collagen, the, the, uh, the meniscus in between the joints of the vertebral column and knees, That'll deteriorate. It'd be the same thing for an inactive individual as you age. 
you know, I've often said that, that uh, with respect to Ronnie Coleman, there's a whole lot more people in wheelchairs that don't exercise and don't lift weights than do. Uh, Ronnie, uh, you know, pushed his body too far, too hard. We see that in almost any sport. We see that in football players. We see that in 12-year-old girls who are doing gymnastics and end up with surgeries on their tendons and wrists and ankles and um, that kind of thing. So in my video that I did on uh, if you want to be healthy, don't compete, I talked about the fact that you can certainly overtrain uh, regardless of your sport. We saw that in in 12-year-old uh, Chinese badminton players blowing out their ACLs, uh, their uh, ligaments in their knees. So that kind of thing, dynamic injuries are much more prevalent in, in, in team sports than they are in weightlifting by far. And the loading mechanism, when done properly, when managed responsibly and done progressively over time, actually improves bone mineral density improves muscular strength and endurance improves tendons and ligaments and improves cartilaginous joints uh, such as that of the spine and the knee and so it's hard to talk about those things in isolation with respect to an individual like ronnie who pushed himself too hard which you could certainly compare to any just about any nfl football player who's uh, suffering from you know all those years of putting their body in that position and you know be cautious not to not to uh, discourage uh, individuals, particularly middle-aged or older individuals who may very well need some sort of progressive resistance program to help uh, stave off sarcopenia, which is the, you know, the age-related loss of muscle tissue or uh, bone mis- mineral density loss. We know particularly in women who suffer from osteoporosis, one of the best things they can do, um, and you can eat a lot of calcium and not solve that problem, but when you start loading the body with a proper nutrition program, uh, and it could just start out with, you know, air squats, just having them sit down and stand up. Loading the body is what uh, gives it the, the stimulus that it needs to start to, to uh, build bone density and muscles and tendons and ligaments and all of that. So I get that feedback a lot from folks. You know, why are you squatting 500 pounds? You're going to be in a wheelchair like Ronnie. Uh, you know, I think it's all relative. And I I think that if you responsibly manage your own progressive resistance program, 500 pounds uh, might be very heavy to most people, but I used to squat 900. So to me, it's kind of a maintenance program. You're too smart for me, man. (laughs) 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 I was, I was, because I mean, I've been, my dad was a pretty big exercise guy and I've been kind of working out my whole life. And then just listening to you, I was like, holy shit, I know nothing about anything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, one of the most important things I do with my program is I try and get, I I say that the most important thing you can do, what's the best diet, the one you'll follow, what's the best exercise, the one you'll do. And so for me, it's compliance is the science. And just understanding that that moving the body and, you know, hopefully gradually implementing some sort of resistance program, a little bit of load, uh, is going to cause the body to adapt in a very positive way and, and not only improves the quantity of life, but the quality of life so i might just start with some 10 minute walks and uh you know a a responsible nutrition program and uh, of course i focus a lot on getting a good quantity and quality of sleep and that's where i really start with most of my clients and i kind of end there too to be honest this weekend of course i'm down in florida at the world's strongest man and i met up with hoff thor and brian shaw who i work with and some of the things I did was just to make sure that they had all their groceries and all their meals, a rice cooker and all the food that they needed, 
Um, that's a huge thing. And then two days ago, I was in Philadelphia, and I worked with uh, Lane Johnson, offensive lineman for the Philadelphia Eagles. And uh, the very first thing I did is programmed his CPAP. He's a 325-pound guy, and he has to use a, a, a CPAP machine to offset his holding his breath at night, snoring and apnea episodes. And that was the single most important thing I could do for him. It dropped his blood pressure by almost 15 points within three days. Uh, and then we, uh, he, you know, he sweats a lot at practice, and so we worked on a hydration protocol to get him adequate sodium and potassium. So these are very simple, simple things. He's got some joint issues. He had a knee problem, and now he's going through a little bit of foot and ankle problems. We designed some repetitive movement uh, you know, with some banded work just so he could pump a lot of blood into his joints, more movement. You talked about that you work with some of the guys who compete in World's Strongest Man, like Brian Shaw and and. I know him mostly as the mountain from Game of Thrones, but like as strong as you were and are, are you close to those guys or can they kind of blow you out of the water? Yeah, it's a whole nother level. Uh, maybe in powerlifting in my weight class, I set world records, but my weight class was 275. These guys weigh 450. And uh, they're deadlifting, I think, over a thousand now. And I'm, mind you, they use a uh, wrist straps, uh, but nonetheless, they're still extraordinarily strong. They're on another level. There's no question. Hawthorne Shaw, 6'9", 450 pounds, uh, and the level of strength, and a whole lot of their competitors. I work with the Rongo Keen, I work with the, um, uh, Brian Oberst. A whole lot of their competitors are, are over 400 pounds as well. It's just a whole other level of individual. The, the world's strongest man competitors has, has gotten to an almost comical level nowadays. It's, it's not certainly not something that, that the vast majority of people could even aspire to. Now, are those guys, though, will they stay at that kind of weight? I mean, is that around their natural stuff? Because I've known from just my day job some offensive linemen that you would look at while they were competing, and they were the biggest people in the world, and then you kind of see them a couple years afterwards, and they don't don't look anything like that. I mean, are those guys naturally that size, or are they just kind of pumped up, for lack of a better phrase, because of what they're doing? Well, they eat into that. There's certainly no way they should stay that big. That's not a weight that you want to maintain for an extended period of time. You don't see too many 400-pound 70-year-olds. You know, that just your heart can't support it. So that's one of the things that I work with with my athletes is trying to mitigate damage. You, know, you can't avoid it. It's going to happen. You need to eat 10,000 calories a day to support 450 pounds. It's, otherwise, you couldn't stay there and you wouldn't be as strong. So in order to win these uh, competitions, uh, you do what's necessary, and behind the scenes, I'm trying to manage things like blood pressure and blood sugars and, you know, talked about uh, using a CPAP for sleep apnea and I'm getting adequate potassium so that your blood pressure is not too high, utilizing a diet that doesn't cause uh, fatty liver disease, uh, which then would, would, in, would cause insulin resistance. All of those things, uh, you know, we, we want to try and manage with, with a great diet. When I got off the war, he was 430 pounds. I had to take him down to 390 uh, because his blood sugars were elevated and his blood pressure was elevated. And so I dieted him down, and then I took him back up slowly after we uh, fixed his fatty liver disease. Uh, he had some elevated liver enzymes, AST, ALT, and um, that was causing him to gain just fat and not muscle. His nutrient partitioning was, he was the nutrition, the carbohydrates, the glucose wasn't being absorbed uh, uh, very well because of insulin resistance, and so he was 
just gaining a lot of fat, not getting stronger. When you look at bodybuilding today, what trends do you like? What trends do you not like? Uh, one of the big ones that I kind of went through and I've, we've seen, you know, periodically here recently was the dirty bulks. You know, I did the gallon of milk a day. I got over 300 pounds and I was fat. My blood pressure was elevated and, uh, you know, that was back in the early 90s. Uh, fortunately, most bodybuilders diet back down for shows. And uh, the other thing is when people who are dieting, uh, particularly women in the physique figure bikini competitions, they over-restrict and create metabolic adaptation issues that are health issues, iron deficiency, B12 deficiency, choline and biotin deficiency, their hair starts falling out, they get low thyroid function, amenorrhea, which is cessation of the menstrual period, um, the female triad, they call it, uh, they start getting uh, losing bone mass. Um, that's frustrating, and the coaches in the industry are still prescribing um, these over-restrictive egg white white fish and broccoli diets and these women are you know they're coming with these uh, you know horrible condition hair loss and and the uh, hypothyroidism and, and uh, iron deficiency and all of that uh, I think it's really irresponsible and I wish that that they would focus on micronutrients first and health first you don't have to take out red meat or egg yolks or dairy or fruit or salt or iodine to for an athlete to compete uh, in uh, for a woman to compete in the Olympia matter of fact if you kept them in they would be better and healthier longer and that's uh, frustrating that's a message I'm trying to get out now uh, as loudly as I can that these uh, uh, bro trainers uh, putting people on these egg white and white fish and broccoli diets uh, should find a different career and quit ruining uh, women's health. Like a typical training day, nutrition-wise and also exercise-wise, what's that look like for you? Uh, well, when I was competing, obviously there would be a lot more volume and frequency. For bodybuilding, I would train twice a day. I always believed that um, your hypertrophy was optimized but with more frequency. Um, so I would, if I was doing, say, chest on Monday, I would, or push on Monday, I would do chest in the morning and shoulders and tries at night. And that might be 40 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes at night. It's just the idea that uh, each of these sessions increases uh, the adaptation process, all of the uh, release of growth hormone and testosterone, IGF-1. Um, and so the more that you can do that, you know, I talked about frequency in terms of my three 10-minute walks a day or, um, you know, frequency of, of fixing your joints by giving them more volume and frequency, just more blood flow. Uh, that was big for bodybuilding for me. That's so I always tried to train two a days, and that's what I recommend to all my athletes. Uh, optimally, you get in about you train every body part twice a week. You put in about ten to twenty sets per body part per week, uh, and the intensity should always be within a rep of failure, or what we call maximal muscle fiber recruitment. You're, again, earlier we talked about the fact that if you don't provide an stimulus your body is not going to adapt and respond with any kind of growth uh, or strength well an adequate stimulus requires you to um, obtain maximal maximal muscle fiber recruitment and that can happen one of two ways you can lift either 85 percent of your one rep max and as soon as you start doing a rep whether it's a bench press or a squat your muscle will your muscle fiber contraction will be maximal you'll recruit all the type type ones type 2As, type 2Xs, you'll, they'll all come together to lift that load. 
if you lift lighter loads, which, as we said earlier, you can grow muscle at five reps, 12 reps, or 20 reps, much the same, so long as you come within a rep or two of failure. And so if you're going to do, say, your, your bodybuilding 8 to 12 rep range, you have to lift a heavy enough weight, if it's 50 or 60% of your one rep max, enough times so such, such that you've recruited 100% of maximal muscle fiber recruitment. Because initially, when you start curling that dumbbell or you start benching that 50% load, uh, you're only going to recruit you know, some type 1 fibers and then eventually some type 2 A's. And the more repetitions you lift, the more muscle fiber you recruit until ultimately you've recruited all of the muscle fiber. And the way that I, I watch that is, is as soon as your speed slows down, if you're benching and you're rep- repping out bench presses and all of a sudden one slows down, that means you've recruited all your muscle fiber and then some are failing. You don't need to keep going. You don't need to have somebody spot you through a rep or go until you completely fail. But you got to get to within about a rep or two of failure. That's maximum muscle fiber recruitment. And then over time, once you start doing that consistently, you can just add a little more volume. You can instead of doing five sets, you can do seven. Um, uh, you know, so that they adapt appropriately. If you don't, they'll shrink. They have no incentive to maintain their size if they're uh, not challenged with a load that requires them to to hold on to that muscle. And that's why when I have women diet for shows, I don't have them jumping around all over the gym doing high repetitions of too light of weight and battle ropes and all kinds of stupid stuff like that. It's actually more important when somebody's dieting in a calorie deficit that they employ the the most uh, beneficial scientifically-based hypertrophy-style programs they lift harder, uh, they get adequate volume and frequency, but the intensity has to be significant because they're at a calorie deficit and they're losing weight. What's to prevent their body from taking that muscle off? And that's why I don't have them do a ton of cardio. If they get on a treadmill and start doing a bunch of cardio, their body's going to adapt to the stimulus that's provided. And then the adaptation for cardio is to get rid of muscle. It's heavy, has a high oxygen demand, has a high nutrient demand. So I don't send mixed signals to the body, particularly when dieting for a physique-type show. You were on Shark Tank? When did you go on Shark Tank? Oh, it was about two years ago now. Yeah, it airs about every four months on repeats for the last two years, so it's, it keeps propping up. But I, I had a product that I invented called The Cooler, and I uh, went and applied to Shark Tank. I went to one of their open auditions, and they called me back, and we uh, went back and forth for a while, you know, just answering questions and providing them information, and... Eventually, they invited me on the show, so I went and presented to the Sharks, and then I closed a deal with Damon John, and he's now partners with me selling the cooler nation or worldwide. Is that pretty nerve-wracking? I mean, they edit it in a way that it looks like it's really nerve-wracking, but is it in real life? Oh, yeah, it's even worse in real life. That, uh, that Q&A where they're asking the, the questions lasts over half an hour, and on the show, it's like two minutes. But they're drilling you with questions for over half an hour, and they're coming at you from all angles, positive and negative, and you've got to field all those questions. And then the editors, they uh, chop that down into a couple of minutes for the show. It's a real deal. Like they're not – This it's not for show, right? Like they don't just say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this and then it never actually happens. They're actually going to business with people? Yeah, it's a real deal. And it's even worse than that. The deal you make on the show isn't even the final deal. Um, it's an offer pretty much. And then after the show, you still have to campaign and, and, uh, and fight uh, to, to become – uh, to get a deal with the Sharks because over 200 people present on the show and only 120 of them air. And the Sharks will tell you in most cases that if the show doesn't air, you don't have a deal. 
because that's the 10 million homes worth of marketing when that thing goes out. Uh, that's the biggest piece of, of, uh, of making the deal is that advertising that, uh, when the show airs. And so they're very candid to say, look, you know, I've, I've got other people who are interested in doing deals with me. And uh, if you can't convince me that you're going to be the one that's going to be successful, then I'm not going to go to bat and ask the producers to put you on the show. So it was it was uh, the thing seemed to, it never ended. So what is the cooler? I kind of know, but I don't entirely know. What is what is it that you designed? Uh, it's a beverage container that you can take to exercise with. It's a, It holds a water, and it also holds a shaker cup inside. The original one held two shaker cups. It was a gallon size. And then we created a, a cooler sport, a smaller size. It's a half-gallon container that holds a half-gallon of water. And then inside of that container, dropping down into the middle of it, is a shaker bottle. Uh, so you can take water and you can have a pre-intra, post-workout drink. And the and you started the vertical diet as well. Now that's tell me about the diet. Yeah, well, the vertical diet is something I've been using with my athletes for many, many years. It's um, every time I have a client come to me, I want to give them everything that they need to be successful. And that again is sleep, hydration, nutrition, training, every aspect of uh, on all the the different tips and tricks that I've learned over the years uh, to help them be successful. And so uh, when Hofthor's success became so, uh, you know, so popular in the industry. And people asked him what he was doing. He said he was doing the vertical diet. He was working with me. Uh, and then I just got inundated with um, inquiries about what that was. And so I, uh, I cleaned it up and put it out on the internet as a tool, as a, as a product. On my website at stanhefferding.com, you, you can purchase the vertical diet. And it's a very comprehensive 200 pages with over 250 scientific references. And I walk people through every single thing that I think that they need to do to be successful. Um, and it's there in a, in a download on my website. You can purchase it and, uh, and start to implement it. Bodybuilder you most admire? Uh, flex wheeler, for sure. Best bodybuilding exercise? Uh, I still think it's going to be the, uh, still think it's going to be the squat overall just in terms of building mass over the whole body from traps to toes. Worst bodybuilding exercise that people do? Oh, God, there's a ton of them. I, I can't even uh, begin to think. I'm not a big fan of sit-ups, I'll tell you that. I think they're bad for the lower back. Uh, they don't build muscle in the core uh, the way that squats do. I think the core is a stabilizer, not a flexor. So in both in terms of, of lack of effectiveness and potential uh, downsides in terms of injury. Uh, I'll I'll put that one in there. Best bodybuilding movie. Um, it have to be Pumping Iron. Worst bodybuilding movie. Probably Pumping Iron Two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen that one. It was pretty. It's like, ooh, yeah. This is not. This is not good. I want to thank Stan so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him. We have linked to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. He's really got some fantastic training advice, and he shows you how to do some of these exercises. And then he also ta also talks a lot about dieting. And it's really cool just to kind of see the different levels of things. Like, right, like you're pretty good at something, so to say. But then there's a whole nother level of people being good at something and a whole nother level of knowledge that even if you can't necessarily get to that place, I think there's just so much to be learned from it. 
You can also connect with him. We've got some more information on the RSS feed that's in this podcast. All right, so now we're going to go ahead and give John Shaw a call. But before we do, I want you guys to really quickly just think, what do you think that his biggest contribution to the podcast has been over the 50 episodes that we've been doing this? I'm going to ask him that. Probably going to hear a long pause right afterwards, followed by essentially nothing. Nick, how are you? I was good until you said that, and then I don't really like it when people use my name in a conversation when talking to me. Are you one of those people, like you'll be having a conversation with somebody, and then halfway through the conversation, they'll say, and John, let me tell you. That doesn't get me uh, as much as when people call me, like, bud or or guy. Like, that bothers me a lot more than if they use my name halfway through a conversation. Somebody will call you Bud halfway through a conversation or just be like, and guy, I was telling you? Sometimes. Uh, I mean, not so much now, but in the past it's happened. What were you doing in the past that this happened all the time? Were you hanging out at, like, the local drag race track? Uh, you know, actually, true story, I we have a drag racing track in southern Michigan. Shocker. And I've actually been, and it's pretty legit. Okay, why is it pretty legit? How, how would you compare it to other drag race tracks? I mean, I... I haven't been to any other drag race, but so you don't, they, so you don't actually, so you don't actually know it's legit at all. All I know is they host uh, cars and tournaments every year, and one of the tournaments is the funny cars, which are the ones that go like three hundred miles an hour in six seconds. So this brings up an interesting question to me because of what you said, where you said that I went to this drag racing track and it's legit, but. Ultimately, since you've never been to any other drag racing tracks, you really don't have any idea what you're talking about. But that's not my question. My question is, what percentage of the amount of things that you talk about or anybody talks about do you think you actually know something about? Like you're talking about something. How much of that do you actually think that you know something? Well, I think the if you're talking about that statement alone, I think it's fair to ask what what percentage of the population knows anything about drag racing at all? Probably maybe 15%. I would say I would say maybe 2% of anyone can name me a funny car driver. No, I would say less than 1% of the nation can name me a funny car driver right now. I couldn't even tell you what a funny car is. I'm I'm imagining what it is, but I feel like that's probably not what it is. But I would say for me to actually answer the question I would say that maybe 60 to 70% of the things that I talk about, I actually know what I'm talking about. I think you're giving yourself a lot of credit. Really? Okay. I am definitely one of those people that if we're having a conversation and say you start talking about college basketball, I will act like I have a vast knowledge of it to be included on the conversation when Maybe I don't. I generally try not to talk about things or put a big opinion out there if I don't really know that much about it. Maybe that's why I would put my number so high. But I would actually say, listening, thinking about it more, I'm going to say 30 to 35% of the conversations that someone has, they actually know what they're talking about. So almost 70% of the time, people don't know what people, us included, don't actually know what they're talking about. I mean, I, I, I do think you need to clarify that 
most of the conversations that we have are, are, are with our friends where you're just talking about something and most of it's just opinions anyways, right? It's not, you know, it's just storytelling. It's just, you know, you're talking about something you saw on TV or it's not like you're sitting down and you're actually, you know, talking about like your work or something that you have vast knowledge and it's always usually BS, which makes me think of another question is how much of a con- uh, of our daily conversations are meaningless with with people that we know closely i would say not very much with people that we like work with people that you kind of occasionally know i put the number at 80 to 90 percent it's just a meaningless conversation that's a pretty high number i i would probably go a little above 50 but I, I wouldn't rule out getting that high if I really thought about it. Yeah, I mean, most of the conversations, like, how often do you walk by somebody that you know and say, like, what's up? But you don't expect them to ask, actually answer that question. No one ever actually answers it. It's essentially a meaningless conversation. What I always wonder is, are you one of those people that, you know, say you're walking to the office and you're greeting people, do you do you always, you know, and, you, and obviously you know who you work with for the most part, so, like, Say Jim, right? Say Jim has a family. So every morning you go, oh, Jim, how's the family? When you probably could really care less, you're just saying it to, you know, to start conversation. I would say that you started to have a conversation. I mean, some of it is just the general niceties of working with somebody else, right? Like if you work with that person very often, you kind of have to occasionally check in with them and see how life is doing. But I don't think that people... Generally, I would say only 10% of the people anybody talks to on a given day actually care about what is going on with their life. But this, is, this isn't this is what I wanted to initially talk to you about. We're recording this on Father's Day, and the question that I want to ask you is, do you think that you should have been allowed to reproduce? Like if the government regulated it, do you think that you should have been allowed to do it? Like is your gene- is your genetic material worthy of reproduction? It, uh, yes, in, in comparison to to the world we live in, I I should be at the forefront of the reproduction uh, line. So, okay, let's say ten. A ten is like LeBron James, Denzel Washington, Tom Hanks, somebody that you like. We need we need them to have more children. And a one is somebody that you absolutely don't want to have kids. Like, there's no reason that person should be reproducing. What? Where would you put yourself at on a scale of one to ten? I mean, I, I think I'm an eight or nine. Whoa! You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good person. Uh, you know, I'm. But being a good person is not necessarily like for genetic fitness of the survival of the species. Being a good person is not is not advantageous. Well, I don't think. I mean, I, I've made it almost 32 years. I mean, I'm doing something. Right? I don't I don't agree with your pedestal that, like, Tom Hanks and Denzel are automatic 10s. I mean... They're pretty high up there. Listen, I, I'm not... I think you're being awfully, awfully presumptive going an 8 or 9 for you. I mean, na- na- I mean hold on. I need to get back to this, this Tom Hanks, Denzel. This is not – look, you can put whoever you want up there. I think you're trying to backtrack out of the fact that you went really high and said eight or nine, and now you feel like that's too high and you're trying to divert it. No, no, I'm – I I mean I, I can I can give you reasons. I mean there's 
you know, for one, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a good person. That has to have something, right? But I think that I think in terms of being, have you ever looked at like, hey, look at that wolf. That's a really good wolf. Look at him help out his neighbors. Like nobody's ever well, said that. Well, I, I mean, I think if we're looking at genetic makeup, I mean, I, I'm just I'm just an average person. You know, I, I I got a little extra that I could lose, but it's not like I'm walking around with you know uh, obvious issues. Well, I I do have a blood disorder, so if I get if I get cut, uh, it's going to take me a lot longer to heal. So I don't know, okay, okay, maybe a seven or an eight. No, you just said average. If you're average, that's a five, and the blood disorder would actually bring you down. So you might be like a four. <laughs> this is terrible. How did I get brought into this? Um, I think it's a legitimate question. I think that people like should have to. No, I don't actually think that. But I think that I just wanted I wanted you to assess your genetic fitness. I mean, I I would still think I'm I'm above. I still think I'm a seven and a half and above. Okay. I don't have any. I don't have any like pre-existing medical issues, really. Um, well, I mean, aside from your kidney stones at the age of eighteen to twenty-two, <laughs> your liver well, problems. How do you remember that? Because no. I listen to people. Besides, I mean, look, if you ruled out your kidney stones, your liver problems, your torn hamstring running around a second base, uh, your blood disorders, <laughs> your most likely probably diabetes at some point, and your overall pear-shaped body, I guess you would be a seven. <laughs> All right, well... well. You do a much better job of I, by the way, than than wrapping all that into one package. If that's the package, okay, fine. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'll, I'll, I'll go with a five on that. All right, I'll 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 settle for a five. I suppose. Okay, that's a little <laughs> bit more realistic. I feel like. What are what are, what are you giving yourself? <sighs> Probably a five. I mean, I think that I've I think that I've got some good genetic qualities, but they're balanced. But they're um, they're kind of counteracted by other things. Like I took an IQ IQ test once; it was above average. But I also was born without a sense of smell, so that brings me back down. I'm I'm not really a big guy, so that probably brings me down. I have asked God; I might be a good day. Whoa. I might be lower than because I have asthma. I would have died a couple of hundred years ago, probably. Man, I might be like a three nine. <laughs> you have you have asthma? I didn't know that. Yeah, I've uh, pretty bad asthma. I have to take steroids for it. That's why I'm so. Oh, that's why I'm so. That would explain your little penis. <laughs> yeah. No, it hey, sad. Oh. Sadly, it still doesn't, according to the doctor. Um, look, I have a segment idea for you, but I also want to know if you have anything to offer this podcast because you probably haven't been paying attention, but this is our 50th episode. So tell me in, in one word, what is your biggest contribution to this show? Charisma. (laughs) God, that's pretty good. (laughs) All right. If, Uh, If anything, I am here for the ride with you and I'm like your, uh, like if you're if you're a dog, I'm like your chew toy. You know what I mean? I'm always here. You're always throwing me around. You're always you know, you know, just just nipping at me. But I'm I'm always here. I always come back. Okay, uh, that's look. That's an admirable quality. That is an admirable quality. <laughs> Do you have anything? Yeah. 
do you You're have not any? Getting rid of me that easy. I mean, fifty episodes in. Well, it's actually since you weren't here for two of them, and you only have forty-eight. I've been here for every episode. No, you haven't. What's the two that I haven't been there for? Um, I think that you weren't here for when your kid was born, which apparently is an excuse. Oh yeah. Well, I to be honest, I don't even remember that. No, that wasn't. A, now, if I have a kid, like a kid, I'm gonna be back at work the next Monday, the following Monday. I mean, for a man, I actually went to work the next day. <laughs> well, I don't know if I agree with that, but you know, everyone's different. So, well, we didn't have. Um, I just started at a new at a new company and didn't have um, didn't have any paid time off or anything. And all, it was the first kid. The whole family was in town. There's like, there's no reason for me to be here. And I just went to work. And it's like, go to work. Oh. Make money instead. Speaking of, there was some interest in wanting to know if you ever uh, confronted that relative. Oh, that's a whole situation. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, um, it's, that's, a, that's the only thing I could say at this time. That is a whole situation. <laughs> Stay. Stay tuned for future broadcasts. Stay tuned for future broadcasts. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. In, in hindsight, potentially going on a podcast. Here's the th- here's the weird thing for that relative is you can't – to give somebody the backstory, basically I found a relative of mine's Twitter account, which is riddled with conspiracy theories and not like light conspiracy theory kind of stuff. Like we're talking about Reptile Man, Illuminati, all this kind of really hardcore – conspiracy theories and i asked john about what should i do the problem that i think that relative faces is can you acknowledge it to me right because if you if you say something then you've basically acknowledged that yes i you think that i'm talking to you about it right like i feel like that relative should just let it lie low (laughs) i mean or or like like i like i said i i would just want to know like like, who are you? Like, I don't know who you are anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think that's essentially the issue. You find out something, and you're like, what? <laughs> what? I still don't agree with the Tom Hanks, Denzel, you know, as 10 things, but that's fine. Who do you think is the best genetic representation of our species? Oh, my man. That's putting me on the spot. Uh, best genetic representation well like we got we got one person like look the species is going out we've got two people we got one man one woman that's all we can save is their genetics who we putting forward man i mean that's like that's really tough to do i mean off the top of my head like i want to go with an athlete but then (sighs) it's like which which sport do you choose? I think you'd almost have to, just by process of elimination, go... I think you'd almost have to go with a smart athlete, essentially, because there you're talking about kind of the best of both worlds, right? You'd have the like, genetic fitness, and you would have, if they're smart, you'd have the intellectual abilities as well. Like, I, I kind of am going to hate myself for saying this, but almost like a Peyton Manning. Okay. Yeah. No. Like... Somebody yeah, like he's he's tall, he's smart. Uh, See, I was gonna. Uh, I mean, he, he obviously comes from a lineage of. He's got good genes. Know. Yeah, I was gonna go like I, I was gonna go LeBron James. I mean, See, he's LeBron, he seems like he's LeBron pretty is, smart. He yeah, I don't disagree with that. I just 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would say he's up there for sure. I mean, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. Like, I was going to say, like, he, he's, he has bad knees or something. But, you know, the only reason Peyton Manning doesn't have bad knees or anything like that is because he never really got hit. Yeah. So. Um, do you have anything else, or are you ready to get into our top five? I did want to bring – I wanted to ask you one more thing. Okay. Uh, not ask you, more or less bring up. Uh, did you see that video that's been circulating – of uh, Wait, Dobbius from Harry Potter. Did did you how did you say the word say the word circulating again? Circulating. Okay, one more time. Don't try <laughs> to don't try to fancy it up. Just say it like you say. Okay, seemed a little fishy. <laughs> well, I, mean, I feel like you're pronouncing it like it's circulating, like S I R. Culating. It's circulating. Yeah, I guess I do kind of say it like Yeah, that. you kind of say it like it's S-I-R. You got to get that in. You can, see, that's why you're not going to be a good genetic representation of the species. You can't even speak the language. <laughs> you know, you and I, we should we should impose this question to all our faithful listeners. I, I want to know, like, we should have some kind of, I don't know, on Facebook or on Twitter or something, Instagram. I want to know other people's opinions i'm curious that's a, it was a very good question no it's kind of a really we, we could i mean for one of our contests we could put this out to our listeners and just see which one of our listeners is the best genetic example of people that should move on going forward <laughs> yeah, but, but we're we're judge jury and execution so like we're automatic tense so right 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 naturally um what were you talking Anyways. about what were you saying is circulating about abu dhabi <laughs> no, not Abu Dhabi. Uh, do you know who Dobby is from Harry Potter? Yeah, dude, I do. Hufflepuff okay. for life, baby. Whatever. Um, I'm not actually Hufflepuff. Uh, so, I believe I'm Slytherin. Are you done yet? Yeah. So there's a video uh, that's circulating the interwebs that apparently shows a Dobby-like creature walking down a driveway at night. Have you seen that video? No, and I can already tell you that the video is not... What are you, you going to tell me? That people actually think this is a magical elf? No, I mean... <laughs> I Obviously, there's a lot of... It's 50-50, as it always is in this case. I don't believe it. But it, I was going to try to segue to the question of asking you is... What's the strangest thing like you've ever just randomly seen like while looking out your window or something? Nothing. You haven't seen anything weird ever. I don't think so. I really can't think of a single instance where I've like looked out the window and seen something strange or or anything like that. All right. I mean, not even that time that you know that that we were chopping uh, you know fruit uh, on a balcony and then we were you know and it just happened to make its way down to vehicles and we would look down and see pissed off people. That's a- <laughs> Total accident. I don't. I don't recall <laughs> using a tennis racket to smack apples off the top of a fourteen-story building. I don't recall that at all. Um, no. Yes, we can move on to the top five, which I'm pretty excited about yet again. Look, I want to pitch. I want to pitch a segment idea for you that maybe you can come back with. I think you should come up with like a versus segment where you could do like 
the Arby's mascot versus the Carl's Jr.'s mascot or something along those lines. I want you to think about it. And while you're thinking about it for the next six weeks, which is probably how long it's going to take you to actually come up with the segment and remember to do it and bring forward some good ideas, uh, our top five is top five most annoying bumper stickers. What is your number five? Uh, So this is regionally based, I believe. But it's anyone with like a NASCAR bumper sticker. Mm. Like like just the numbers, you know, like the number three or like uh, it was famous for a while. Like it was just Dale Earnhardt's face. I you know. I know I'm familiar with it. I haven't get up next to them and you look at who's driving and you go, of course, of course, that person has a, you know, number three bumper sticker makes complete sense. For people who may be new to this podcast, John has a real issue with Dale Earnhardt. I don't (laughs) that. I don't understand why you hate Dale Earnhardt so much, but all right, maybe all he's your. All I can say is, girl, <laughs> I think you have that picture. I think you posted a picture of me in my glory with all my wrestling medals on, standing in front of a picture of a semi truck, and in the four, in the next to it is a picture of Dale Earnhardt. I don't know what my parents loved about Dale Earnhardt, but they had a shrine of him. Uh, growing up that I had to see every day. Any chance he's your real father? <laughs> I mean, listen, him and my father share the same kind of mustache, so who knows? I mean, that's not how genetics and babies work. But anyway, um, he, mustache he, rides don't give you babies? No, and if Dale Earnhardt was your father, that wouldn't have any bearing on your father's mustache. Like, two men don't make the baby. So that's Do you think if Dale Earnhardt was... Like my father, my for real father, I could get like a like a three point one. No, no. All right, fair enough. What's your number five? I'm my number five is anything political. Whether what whether whatever side that you're on, I just don't understand why you put that on the back of a bumper on the back of your car. Like, I, I, who's the person that's just driving around and sees this bumper sticker and thinks, you know what, I am gonna vote that way. Thank God they put that on their car. Like, what's the purpose of letting everybody know that? I don't get it. So uh, I want to come back to this because I actually have that much higher on my list. Okay, give me your number. Uh, give me your number four then. It's uh, those people who have the half marathon or marathon stickers, like the thirteen point one or twenty six point two bumper stickers. Ooh, it's like, it's like I don't care that you're healthy. I mean, good for you that you ran a half marathon and a marathon. But, like, I don't want to pull it behind you while I'm eating my uh, McDonald's sandwich, drinking my Coke, and and see that you're fit, okay? I don't want to see. That makes me want to run into the back end of you. I have that. I have that actually is my number one. That, to me, is the worst bumper sticker is people who do that, especially if they have, like, the multiples of it. I'll give you putting the one biggest one on there, but I don't want to see your 13.1, your 26.2, your 40, your 70, your 140. Like, I, I don't care. We get it. You run. Nobody gives a fuck. My number four is the My Child is an Honor Roll ones. Oh, I have that. That's my number three. Oh, okay. No, it's just like that's a great example of how someone can be a winner and a loser at the same time. I understand being proud of your kid. Hell, I might even do it, but right now I'm not to that point, so I can put it on my list. But it's like no one gives a shit that your kid got straight A's in the fourth grade. 
No, no one cares at all. And really, like, the smarter kids seem to like realize that it's not really that hard to graduate high school. I might as well just go to community <laughs> college and save some money because we're all ended up in the same place. I mean, <laughs> I mean, maybe by putting that bumper sticker on the back of your car, you're actually setting your child up for failure because they think that being successful, you know, in grade school doesn't have to correlate to, to high school. I agree with that. Um, my number, or wait, you already gave your number three. Your number three is the my child. Yeah. This might have been a Kansas thing. My number three is the ones that have the, like it's, it, it looks like Calvin from Calvin and Hobbes or Hobbes. I'm not exactly sure which one. I can't remember who's who, but it's, it's like they're peeing on something. It's like I drive a Chevy and I got this bumper sticker of this guy peeing on Ford. Right, yeah, yeah. They, uh, didn't they used to say something like uh, "real life" or or something or or uh, "salt life" or something? I don't know. I know what you're talking about, though, for sure. Oh, like who cares? Who's the Who's the person that's so into Chevy that they need to have that bumper <laughs> sticker on their car because they hate Ford? Like, <laughs> I'll never drive a Mazda. <laughs> who gives a shit? Well, <laughs> They're all made in the same place now anyway. It's probably all the same parts, too. Uh, what are we on? What number are we on now? I got my number two, which is those fucking annoying stick figure families. How dare you, sir? You have one, don't you? I don't have one, but for some reason, I don't mind those at all. I don't mind it. Now I like the it's ones where like the theme of what we have going here with all the other ones is that like I, I understand you're proud of your family and whatever, but like I don't care that you know, I don't care that you have you, your husband, three kids and a dog that looks like a fucking robot. You know, like a robotic cow because it's a stick figure. Like they're just stupid. I, I don't understand who came up with it. They're just dumb to me. I don't mind that one. I do, though, like the ones that are better, where the, sometimes they're Star Wars ones, and it shows the Empire coming in and laser blasting your stick figure family and saying the Empire doesn't care about your family. I like those a I, lot. I was, I was, I was gonna say I like the. I like, I've seen the one with the dinosaur, the T Rex, that like it's eating some of the stick figures. Yeah, I like those. Those are pretty good. That one's pretty hilarious. Uh, my number two is a tie. Anything with a cuss word on it. Like if somebody has a big cuss word just on the back, just I don't I don't understand why you're doing that. And the other one is when people go places and they put like a bumper sticker from every place that they've ever been on their car. Like you got to take that shit off someday, and no one cares. <laughs> yeah, I mean, once again, I and I, I really, as we're saying this, I'm trying to think of like why people put bumper stickers on their cars. And it has to be for attention, right? I mean, that's the only reason they do it. No, not one person is going to put a bumper sticker on their car and be asked about it and say, oh, I just did it for me. Like, I just, you know, yeah. I, I, I just want to walk around and look at my bumper and see that I've been to, you know, California. I Can I tell a quick bumper sticker story, though, that I thought was really funny? Yeah. A uh, buddy of mine, somebody that you know, Actually, to say his name, Josh Carasso, who was once on this podcast, by the way, when you didn't were apparently having a child and couldn't come on the show. Um, he had a <clears throat> he had a bumper sticker that said "Keep calm and chive on," and somebody else took the C and the E off of it, so it said "Keep calm and HIV on." 
and he was driving around like that for about a month, and I still laugh about it to this day. <laughs> that is pretty. That's pretty clever. Whoever uh, you know took the C and the E off. I'm proud of them. What is? Uh, I think I already gave my number one. What's your number one? My number. You, you already said it. It's uh, anything political. I mean, I just don't give a shit. Even if I agree with you, like I, I, I don't care, and and it, I, I, I really can't stand the people. Kind of like what you said about the states, the people that have like, you know, Bernie twenty sixteen, Bernie twenty twelve, Bernie twenty twenty. It's like I got it. You're a, you know, you're you're you're, you're a voting fan for him, like, and- you know, like I, like I, especially in today's world, like with the political climate where everyone feels entitled tell you their opinion one way or the other like i don't i don't care to, to ever know for the most part i also think that it is counterproductive in the sense that let's say that you have this bumper sticker that has this candidate and 2020 on it and then you cut somebody off they're not going to vote for that candidate now that's all they remember is that guy with this whatever candidate sticker cut me off at the intersection of fifth and orange and now i'm not voting for that guy <laughs> Fuck that guy, right? Because yeah, fuck that guy. It's counterproductive. Um, what I, I don't really have any uh, honorable mentions, but I'm interested in the ones. Are there any that you do like? Um, I mean, kind of what we said earlier. Like, I, I like the ones that are super creative. Even though I'm not the biggest fan uh, of of bumper stickers, but like the T Rex eating the family, they're. Uh, the ones that kind of mock the ones I brought up, like I, I saw one one time that I just jotted down where the person said, like, my, my son actually dropped out of high school. <laughs> your student, um, you know, ju- just that, uh, you know, just dumb ones like that. But uh, I, I do want to say one of my honorable mention is the 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 ones for the for women. That like they put on the back of their trucks that say like truck girl. Oh yeah, yeah. Or, or like ram girl or something. Like I, every time I see those, I just want to go like you. You really probably should take that off immediately. Well, and then what's the point? It's like if I see you, I can clearly see what kind of vehicle you're driving, and I can see your sexuality. I don't. Thanks for telling me. Like Mitsubishi, <laughs> Mitsubishi woman. I don't. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, man. Ridiculous. <laughs> you, you don't see a lot of pride in fiats necessarily that's out there. <laughs> one of I, Some of the ones that I really like, though, I saw one that one time said, fuck your Prius. <laughs> I thought that was really good. And my my personal favorite is the one that's like, I lost my dignity at XX restaurant. I love those. They're always... <laughs> Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank Stan so much for joining us. We really love to hear what you guys think. If you want to connect with us, we have our website, ProfoundlyPointless.com. We're on social media, Profoundly Pointless, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we've also started a new YouTube channel because I think a lot of the things that we talk about, it really helps to see some of those things visualized. And so that's why we've gone ahead and done that. It's profoundly pointless on YouTube. We are still making our way through the Game of Thrones contest bit by bit. We're still doing that. Coming up in the next episode, I don't know. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.